I also just wanted to say that, like, you know, I always get to meet, like, lots of different people's voices. And <laughs> I can definitely tell that you did major in opera. <laughs> <laughs> This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where our network of subterranean cities is great because it's protected from the fallout and also not so great because every city is themed after different Twilight fan fiction. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today on Queers at the End of the World, we're talking about food sovereignty with my friend Deleslin George Warren. He goes by Rue, so you'll hear us call him that, and he works on food and language sovereignty on the Catawba Indian Reservation. We're talking about food sovereignty partly because of a feature of Mad Max Fury Road, which is this motif of seeds and soil and growing things. The Vuvulini have their bag of seeds, and it sort of represents the promise of a future to the women in the film. While on the other hand, Joe's total control over water and therefore the ability to grow food at the Citadel is implied to be the basis of his grip on power. Yeah, so I think that idea that those who hold power over food hold power over the bodies and the lives of other people is kind of at the center of the idea of food sovereignty itself, which basically food sovereignty just means exactly what it sounds like, the power to control your own system of growing and getting food. And we don't really have that most of us in most places in the U.S., like we have global supply chain instead, which is why when the pandemic disrupts container ships that are coming from Israel, there's a shortage of like organic peppers in Peoria, which is also why communities that live on rich farmland sometimes have to make do with Gatorade and Ho-Ho's because they don't have a grocery store. But it's about way more than consistency for the sake of consistency. Because food sovereignty is really a central idea for all kinds of movements where people have just historically been denied control over their own bodies. So there's this famous quote that I really love that's from the voting rights hero Fannie Lou Hamer, um, which is that when you've got 400 pounds of greens in gumbo soup can for winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to say or do. And Hamer actually started the Freedom Farm Cooperative in Mississippi, partly in order to ensure that white landowners couldn't use starvation as a tactic to keep black people from registering to vote. And it was a similar tactic in the genocide of Native Americans, too, that, you know, this is just one example, but the U.S. massacred the buffalo almost to extinction because they wanted to undermine the ability of Plains Nations to fight back against colonization. And you can't fight if you can't feed yourself. So we wanted to talk to someone who has a whole lot of experience working on food sovereignty in this post-apocalyptic. Apocalypse, and we're really grateful to get to speak to Rue. So let's stop there and hand it over to him to introduce himself as we get started. All right. Awesome. Tanake, Miat Delas George Warren, Miat Nitem Rue, Ye Inspare, Ye Katabare, Ye Kampin Sawachahare. Hawo Nina, Hawo Nat. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Deleslin George Warren, but I go by Rue, like kangaroo, so please feel free to call me that. Uh, I'm a citizen of Catawba Indian Nation. Uh, we call ourselves the people of the river because we've lived along the Catawba River since, in our view, the world began. Uh, and I identify as someone who works in Yankampisawacha, which is a word that means both artist and educator. A lot of my work uh, is focused on how to make art educational and education artistic and breaking down those uh, silos themselves. And I'm calling you from the Catawba Indian Reservation, our green earth, 
reservation. And I'm also giving thanks to the rain, even though I prefer that it wasn't raining. Thank you so much, Rue. I'm so excited. Rue, you just watched Fury Road this very morning. How was it? (laughs) I literally was just finishing it when I got onto this call. Um, I mean, it's like fun and better than previous versions of this sort of like dystopic, you know, post-apocalyptic survival genre. I think I had like, like serious questions around like the specific context of the story. And, but what made me lull was when one of the like mothers was like, let me show you my seeds. And like, she got some bean seeds in there from as far as I can tell, but she's also carrying around a basil start. I'm like, <laughs> Just a little, what? A yeah. <laughs> like, this is your plan? Basil? <laughs> there, it's the pesto of the apocalypse. <laughs> also on her motorcycle which just is like i just don't think it's like the best place to like be sprouting plants in a skull like that is resourceful i will give that to her like a skull is a great pot in a intense situation but like carry around her motorcycle i'm, I'm not on board with that <laughs> mm, yeah too much wind it's true it's hard mm-hmm. it's hard on mm-hmm. plants <laughs> Yeah, I remember my first thought when I when I saw that scene was just that it, she appeared to have some carrot and lettuce seeds in there. And I was just like, those are not viable beyond a year. Um, <laughs> it seems to be a very harsh and dry environment. Well, they were all just like very like temperate climate, summer annual seeds. And it's like, first off, the desert they were in appeared pretty lifeless but the desert as like how we describe it nowadays is not lifeless and lots of indigenous communities have lots of great food traditions. I mean, that's one that's been one criticism around the term food desert. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. I've often heard food apartheid as an option. I love that because it really does refocus on like the issue is not the environment. It's not the ecology. That's a problem. It's our social structures that limit who gets food. I mean, and I don't know if y'all remember it, but like at the beginning of the um, pandemic, I just remember seeing trucks like dumping potatoes. And it's mm-hmm. like quantity of food is not the issue, right? The number right. of calories being produced in the world is not the issue. I guess a good question about that then is just to go from there to asking you about the food sovereignty work that you do that you do on Catawba Nation. Yeah, so I moved back from uh, to Washington, D.C. And so, I, you know, I got this opportunity, very appreciative of the um, Running Strong for American Indian Youth, which is founded by Billy Mills, who was one of the first Native Americans to get an Olympic gold medal. And uh, it's, a, it's a great program because it just supports young Native people to, like, pursue whatever dream project they have for their community. So it allowed me to come back to my uh, reservation, uh, down to our traditional lands. I moved onto the reservation about a year and a half later. But the grant allowed me to work on our language. And in working on our language, what I realized was that so much of what's in our language is knowledge about the world, right? And I'm not going to say the natural world because the word nature and natural do not exist in Catawba. Mm. It's like, what what are you talking about? Like, 
you're talking about just like literally things outside the walls. Is that what you're trying to describe? Huh. And so, um, you know, and, and so that led me to be like, okay, I need to like actually understand the, the plants and the animals that I'm living with um, on these lands to be able to even do this language work. So um, <laughs> when I mentioned that to my boss at the cultural center, uh, she was like, great. You're now in charge of these 40 garden boxes. <laughs> so, <laughs> that led me on a path towards like, okay, I, I need to do like do some more education on myself. Uh, so I was able to take a like permaculture design certification class in Asheville at Wild Abundance, which was awesome. Um, and like bring some of that like framework and lens back to my uh, work. Before that, I had like as a kid gone to what we called the church farm uh, with my granddad who had like rows and rows and rows of potatoes. Mm -hmm. And so my only experience of like agriculture before taking on this work was like being in the hot summer and just pulling like what felt like miles of potatoes <laughs> out of the ground. And so when I first like was like food, like food work, like farming work, like, Oh no, I don't want to like do that. Um, so it's been like very, very therapeutic to like learn that there's other ways of doing this work. Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting because I feel like, um, I feel like for many people who, you know, kind of experience digging potatoes for the first time, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of magical, like treasure hunt experience. Mm -hmm. but, I, but part of what you're describing is like how any good and beautiful work can be kind of transformed by making it mm -hmm. you know, too much and making it compulsive. It can be transformed into something that you're like, heck no, I'm not doing that with my life. <laughs> well, and there's also an aspect to it where it's like, if you're actually going to try to grow enough calories that you're actually going to be able to feed a certain amount of people with the food that you're farming, you know, it becomes from like a few hours a day to like 10 hours a day because it just right. takes that much human labor to create enough calories. And, you know, I've done farm work myself and I, I very much have had that experience of like feeling like that in particular, like I totally romanticize tomatoes and just love them. <laughs> but I, I've done stoop labor and been a picker. And like, you know, after a certain amount of hours of picking tomatoes, it is no longer as magical as you felt it to be the first time, <laughs> you know, but I mean, I feel like that might be connecting a little bit with your perception of the seeds where it's like, those aren't like crops in that bag that are really going to actually feed that many people. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, you know, I was thinking also when what you were just talking about one of the things I looked up on was like, and like, I think something really important about the context is of course, like I'm calling from the Southeast. And so water has just like never really been a huge right. issue in terms of our agriculture. Like yeah. we get a ton of water every year. You know, we, we do have concerns about water in terms of our, I'll say sacred river, like our oldest relationship and the sorts of damages that have been done from industry. So it's like really interesting when I talk to folks from tribes in the Southwest and also indigenous folks from Australia or Kenya or other 
places where water is like an immediate concern. And it's just like, I mean, I just think it reinforces this idea that indigenous people are incredibly diverse and like the concerns Mm. of Catawba nation are just not going to be the concerns of all these other tribal nations. Um, But in that Wikipedia article that I looked at, it says something about like prior to colonization, Aboriginal communities in Australia uh, were using about three days a week on procuring food. And I just thought that was like a really interesting prompt because Let's compare, like, I, I would be yeah. curious about comparing that to how much time we use nowadays in just procuring enough money to, to buy, buy groceries, right. right? And like, right. what is the labor of agriculture or, like, sustenance versus the labor we're mandated to do within this capitalist system? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that loops back to what you were saying, Nina, about, like, some sense of, like, picking as a compulsory act, um, which, mm-hmm. you know thinking of my own commentary just now about like being a farm laborer, that's very, that's, you know, capitalist labor and not sustaining my own life in that case. And the other folks, of course, that I was working with, um, we had, um, uh, Mexican laborers who came on agricultural visas and, you know, that situation is also not them generating food for themselves to eat. It's this mm-hmm. complex socioeconomic situation that they're in working on this, this organic farm. So, yeah, I mean, it obviously goes into the relationship you end up having with plants. <laughs> right. And also the devaluation of food and agriculture work. Food is one of those areas where government has just been like, yeah, sure, you can just make it as cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, what we should actually focus on is giving people the resources to access real food, right? Mm-hmm. And recognizing that, yeah, it takes a lot of work. And it's also valuable beyond just the produce that it creates. Because if we do it in a right way, we can actually like Agriculture can provide ecological services and actually do things like carbon capture, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just like so curious about how we can like reframe from the consumer level of thinking about produce and agriculture. Definitely. It also that kind of brings my mind to some of the stuff I was reading, you know, kind of on the line of acknowledging that when we talk about indigenous seed saving from the perspective of you know, your experience on Catawba Nation, traditional lands, there are like contexts for that movie as an Australian movie that like, you know, go over my head as an American watcher and as a white person who's watching the movie. And like one of the things that I was reading about in relationship to agriculture and indigenous folks in Australia is that just like everywhere that that Europeans colonized, there was a sort of rhetoric of indigenous people don't farm and therefore like have not claimed ownership of the land and therefore can be dispossessed as this sort of like ridiculous stream of logic. And in Australia, the farming systems, as you were saying, were adapted to the particular types of ecology in the places where people were living and what European settlers wished to perceive as hunting and gathering was actually like super complicated systems Mm. of cultivation that included things like large-scale burns in forest Mm -hmm. clearings in order to bring kangaroos 
in into a single space, like to make them easier to harvest. You know, not it's not a CAFO. It doesn't look like a very like space efficient farming operation, but it is cultivation. It's cultivating relationships in a different way that was not recognizable to folks who also did not want to see it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Such a good like series of questions. I'm going to try and like connect to all of them. So (laughs) like, yes, if we define agriculture as planting a single genetic lineage of plants in 100, 300, 500 foot rows, then no, that is not typically what indigenous peoples were doing. But if we think about agriculture in terms of cultivating plant life, right? And what I think is like more interesting is like plant uh, uh, cultivating an ecology, a really productive ecology, mm-hmm. then yes, indigenous people were practicing agriculture. Um, I think it's really funny. Like as a kid, I was like really like disturbed and like curious about this like description of my ancestors as hunter gatherers. But like as an adult, I find it really funny because it always in my mind, projects this idea of like my ancestors just walking through the woods and being like, oh my gosh, a blueberry. (laughs) And like, (laughs) what? No, like, no. (laughs) That's not what was happening. They were clearly cultivating like a large scale ecological project in which lots of different strategies were used. And the thing is that explorers consistently recognized the superior like ecological health, if we define that in terms of like number of species, diversity of species, diversity of landscapes, they were constantly noting it. And they would use terms such as like, this is a garden of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Like John Muir, the founder of the conservation and sustainability movement, you know, when he goes out West, he like writes this poetry about how this is a cathedral of God, but no cathedral made by the hands of man could ever compare to it. And he, like, noted how the valley you could, like, see from one end to the other because it was clear of large brush and trees. And he noted all these large animals moving through it. And so what does he do? He advocates for the conservation of this land. And in his mind, that means preserving it from this, like, pristine, natural, untouched position. And that means removing all humans, including indigenous people there. Mm -hmm. And so when he returns 30, 40, 50 years later... He is shocked by the fact that he can no longer see across the valley. There are giant trees and shrubs in the way. There are no large game animals. And so this is something I like, actually, I've had two talks this past week about this topic, Mm -hmm. which is what is limiting our imagination regarding what is possible between humanity and the rest of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, it seems like fundamentally there's this model or this idea that we are always damaging the planet. And if we're not, if we're really good, then we're just having a neutral effect on the planet. And that is such a sad way to tell our own story. We can be in relationship with the world and make it a more beautiful, a more bountiful, a more diverse uh, ecosystem uh, and the ecosystems that we're inhabiting. Man, there's so many connections between that and things we've talked about before. It just breaks down this idea of there ever being an ecosystem that's just like, quote unquote, pure or untouched wilderness or whatever nonsense that is. 
And instead, it's like you were saying that there's no words in your language for natural or nature. Yeah. Well, I think about like the prophet of wilderness in the United States, which I identify as Henry David Thoreau, Mm. uh, who is like really romanticizing this idea of nature. Yeah. And society kind of being in, in some ways, in opposition to nature, which he identifies as wilderness. But of course, what this like Northeasterner experiences of wilderness is not in fact what people would have seen 500 years earlier. Mm -hmm. What he's experiencing is a landscape that has been torn asunder from human relationships that is, that it, that it had developed over 5,000, 10,000 years. Right. Mm. So yeah, in Catawba, those words just don't exist because they don't make a lot of sense. Also, the categorical word of animal doesn't exist. Mm. We don't have a single word for plant. We have a word for like kind of small herbaceous growth. We also have a word for tree. Uh, We do have a word for snake and for lizard and for turtle and for, but not this like exclusionary category of, oh, there's animals and plants. And then there's humans who are, you know, different, uh, which of course is not biologically accurate. Well, I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to just hear even more about like the, the language revitalization work you're doing. I'm curious, like what kind of things do you do when you do language revitalization? Like what are some of the tasks of bringing that about and working with people on it? Yeah. Our last native speaker, our last first language speaker of Catawba passed away in 1959. Mm which was also the year that the federal government declared that Catawba Nation no longer exists. So this was part of what was called termination policy, where the federal government went into different tribal nations and said, you no longer exist as a tribal nation, which means that for many years, about 40 years, we did not have access to any federal resources. So, for example, even though uh, we have accounts of Catawba's being really concerned about the future of the language, even in the 1960s, you know, just a few years after this Chief Samuel Taylor Blue passes away, we don't have the resources to undergo a recording process with his closest relatives to find out what language do you know? What did he say? And so we fought back in 1993, we regained our federal status. Um, and ever since then, in every survey that we've done, Culture, pottery, and language remain top priorities within our tribal community. So a lot of the work was just gathering together resources. So that was like kind of when I was very young. But unfortunately, some uh, funding gaps happened in the 2000s, which, you know, sometimes I feel like when I say funding gaps, people are like, oh, boring. But like, Mm. this is the central issue for tribal nations. We have answers. We have solutions for our problems. We are not being given the resources that we are owed, which the federal government has itself recognized in the 2018 uh, Civil Rights Commission report entitled Broken Promises. So we, again, had a period in which we were not able to work on the language. So what we're doing now, and since 2017, we're focusing on a few different areas. One is establishing a standardized Catawba, which is not to say that we're going to say that this is the only way to speak Catawba, but rather we need to have something that we can teach the teachers so that Mm -hmm. they can take it to their classrooms. Mm -hmm. We're also looking at how to do a lot more digital engagement because we have a really diasporic community. We have people who live 
on traditional Catawba lands, but that is a very large area. And so they may live there, but be two hours away. And so we want to make sure that they can still be able to attend classes. And honestly, after this year, I think a lot of people are just down for, even if they're down the road, being able to attend a class in their pajamas, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's we've all learned the value of soft pants. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the most exciting thing is that all of our childcare programs, our Head Start program, our tribal government, all of these different entities are super excited about including language in everything that they do. And so we are in a really exciting situation where we don't have to do a lot of this, like, get excited about learning languages work. Everyone's there. We just need to focus on giving them the resources that they need. And part of that problem has been that Catawba Nation has not controlled its own education system since the concept of an education system was created. And so during a typical school year, they're at school from eight until three. They get to our program, we feed them a snack. We have to make sure that they do their homework because our federal funding is partly reliant on that. And then once they're done with their homework, we're not going to make them sit down and do a class. Like, Mm. no, we're going to go outside and we're going to play because we also know that it's really important that they spend time outside uh, with our other than human relationships. So those are some of the things that we're doing as language. Do they get to hang out with all those boxes that you're doing as a garden? (laughs) Yeah. And it's so funny because, uh, you know, some of the boxes are moving and changing. COVID has been just a time of really rapid transformation. Mm. And part of that is because uh, my tribe, along with a lot of other tribes, have viewed this moment and the funding that we've received from this crisis as not just an opportunity to deal with the crisis at hand, but to build capacity for the future. Um, and so one of the things that Catawba Nation has done is purchased about 21 acres of land for yeah. agriculture, um, as well as establishing a food distribution center, which is basically um, it's kind of like a snap grocery store mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of other things. So so that like focus on capacity building has meant also that there's a lot of changes. But in terms of like my experiences in the gardens, it's so delightful because like at first I was like always doing labor in the gardens when the kids weren't there. And then I just like really quickly realized that even if I'm like not doing a class or anything, if I just go to the gardens while the kids are there, I will have like five to 10 kids be like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Can I come help? I want to be in the gardens. And it's like, yeah, sure. I mean, they'll lose their attention after 10 minutes, but like I got 10 minutes of 10 people weeding. Like that's great. (laughs) That's really efficient to me. That's so awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So thinking about how you came to the agriculture through the language is so interesting and exciting. I guess I'm curious about how that has kind of bloomed and developed since you first had that thought and got your got handed these 40 beds and it sounds like in some ways it's developed into a fundamental part of the infrastructure of getting fed in your community but like you know how has language been brought along into that like how how just how Mm -hmm. has that changed and grown yeah have you all read braiding sweetgrass Mm -hmm. really formative book for me but i also feel like a lot of how people engage with the book and also with like indigenous food sovereignty people is around this idea of like, let's find the like better way of doing it. Or like, let's find the information that we need to like correct the situation. And I think what would actually be like really productive is to start really deeply critiquing just like the way that we speak in English, 
how that is constituting what we can imagine as possible in relationship to the rest of the world. Mm. And I think a lot of indigenous people have a lot of insight into like what some of those critiques might be. So for example, what we talked about before, like wilderness, that is a construct, right? Like nature, that's a construct. Animal as a distinct category from human is a construct. And then, uh, you know, another one that I'll just mention since I mentioned all those others before is this term yemong, uh, which means family in Catawba. And it's a word that we talk a lot about in our childcare programs and our family services programs, because it's not a word that means like two, uh, like presumably uh, heterosexual parents, cisgender heterosexual parents with like 2.5 kids. No, yemong is, is like, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, if they're still alive, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. But also in Catawba, there is no word for friend as a distinct category from family Mm. because biological relationship is not important in Catawba language. It's about who you identify as your family. So this was like a really interesting thing in learning more about the language because I was really familiar with one of our chiefs, uh, Chief Hagler, uh, Nokahe, who would always refer to these colonists as brother, brother. And I always thought like, maybe that's like a rhetorical thing or a diplomatic thing, but no, it's just because in Catawba, that is the same word, like brother and friend or cousin and friend or sister and friend Mm. are all the same words. Mm. And so I think that's also like a really important intervention into our concept of family in English, because even though it's opening a little bit, I think it really still defaults to that like biological understanding of family. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much about kind of the different kinds of interrelationships that are possible <laughs> that are like right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> thinking about dystopias, it it goes mm. back to like one of the main places that many folks encounter that concept of like language sort of. Uh, creating these boundaries about around what's imaginable is 1984 and George Orwell and this idea of doublespeak. And Mm. one of the sort of dystopian frameworks is like, what if there was a language and it limited the possibilities for even thinking about freedom? And it's like, yeah, yet again, here we are in dystopia. (laughs) Right. I mean, and like education is one of the, one of those words, like there's been so much brilliant critique, particularly from indigenous communities of even the concept of education, because I mean, like how rude to go into tribal communities and be like, we're going to teach your children how to be Mm. and, and to construct a whole category called education around that and say like, well, you might be teaching them, but they're not getting an education. And and to say like that that is bad, right? I think that's like one of the other kind of fundamental breaks between indigenous communities and some activist communities is around like this idea of education. Because mm-hmm. it's like, it is constantly heralded as like, education will make you free. And it's like for a lot of indigenous communities, education has been the vehicle of assimilation and destruction mm-hmm. of sovereignty. So, you know, let, let's just think a little bit more about like what we're actually fighting for. Like, are we actually just fighting for the concept of education or are we fighting for like specific structures that support our families in doing childcare and like helping our children navigate a really complicated world? Right. I, I identify really on from coming from a totally different a different place about that, but um, mm-hmm. I was unschooled as, as a kid, 
And unschooling is a particular orientation, but it also kind of views education as assimilationist and actually interfering in the process of learning. I feel like maybe some of the work you're doing is, we will say the word education, but what we're pointing at when it's like, there are children running around the garden and weeding for 10 minutes, and then they're running off to do something else. As an unschooler, my perspective on that is, oh, that is what we call learning. (laughs) We don't need a classroom. We don't need a curriculum. We don't need an institution. People do that all the time. And education interferes with that in a lot of cases. You know, and I will say I am a teacher now, so this is not a like all school is bad pedestal, but just hearing you say that like really rings true for me from my own experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes the two things get conflated, which is childcare and the system of education. Right. And I really appreciate what you said, Nat, about learning versus education. Um, I think that's such an interesting and important distinction. And just going off that, one of the tensions we have is like, I at least don't have a particular desire to like create a class structure around it. But so many funding sources take as a Mm -hmm. like fundamental principle that curricula and progressive learning that you start with one thing and you end with another thing Mm. is how education happens. (laughs) And so we're coerced into doing these classes or like finding ways of describing these as classes. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. There's a connection there to what you were saying about having solutions, having desire to connect with and learn the language for people in your community. Mm. It seems like connecting with this language, connecting with this food is like there's so much desire for it and it is this kind of self-motivated like not trying to fit into a system that has like never been built for you i'm thinking so much of the thing you were saying earlier about this like false notion that people just start like attacking each other or something when there's an apocalypse Mm -hmm. and it reminds me of this total mythology that i hear all the time which is that people have to be forced to learn And, you know, on their own, like human beings are just lazy and they don't want to do anything and you have to be forced to do stuff. Mm. And, you know, when you see a kid be self-sufficient like that, in my mind, what that is, is that kid was never given that framework that you have to be forced in order to do those behaviors. And... It just seems self-evident in the same way that it's evident that, of course, people would band together and help each other in the face of a crisis, that people want to be actualized. They want to take care of themselves, and they are inherently curious and engaged in what's going on around them. And when people aren't doing that, it's because someone was in there cranking and forcing and telling them they have to learn something. And, you know, in some cases, like, in fact, separating them from the things that they are curious about and that are meaningful to them. Like in the case of where it's like, oh, you can't speak your your language because some people are going to get angry at you. You know, then it's like, okay, no curiosity about that. No joy in the words and the sounds and the communication anymore. <laughs> like it's tactics then. And mm. yeah. it, that's received. That's to me, that's not, that's not how people 
inherently manifest and want to be. No. And, and like, I, you know, I've never wanted kids. I still don't want kids, but one of the greatest blessings of my life so far has been like working with our childcare program on our cultural curriculum, Mm. because I get to go in and like, work with all these different age groups. But the thing is, like, if you spend any amount of time with children, the idea that they're not inherently curious is just BS, right? Right. Like, you talk to a child and they will not stop asking questions. Yeah. You have an activity you're trying to do and they want to do it. There is a self-motivation that is, that I think is, like, fairly inherent or, like, at least typical of our species. Mm. And that's the other thing, again, like, we keep telling this narrative that, like, our species is bad, our species is bad, and, like, we terrorize the planet and it's like no like there are things that we do as humans that are like kind of spectacular in the world let's not get crazy with it like the way that we have where we're just inherently superior to everything (laughs) but like we can think about the future in a way that few other species can Mm -hmm. we are very curious and have social structures that allow for that curiosity and then as robin wall kimmer talked about in her book we're really good at making edges like mm-hmm. ecologically mm-hmm. and ed- edges are really productive zones ecologically. So like we have gifts as humans, we mm-hmm. should lean into them. Mm-hmm. Um, destruction is unfortunately also a, uh, I-, I would say more of a curse, right? Mm-hmm. But, but it seems often the one that we're leaning into when we could just be leaning into these other ones. Mm-hmm. Thinking about this, this idea of the future. Um, I also, in this kind of like convoluted way work on, I guess what the government calls feeding programs like SNAP and Mm -hmm. and FIDIPR. And I've been thinking a lot lately in my work about the breakfast program that the Black Panther Party ran. And one of the things that Huey Newton said about that program was that they are there as survival pending revolution is what he called them. Um, And that the programs were there to kind of satisfy the needs, but they're not solutions necessarily. He described them as like the survival kit of a sailor stranded on a raft, that it helps him to sustain himself until he can get completely out of the situation. So they're not the answers, but they'll help us to organize a community around a true analysis and understanding of the situation. So that's kind of a paraphrased Huey Newton quote. But thinking about kind of food programs as survival pending revolution is just really interesting to me because on the one hand, I feel like there's a way that that separates food out into something else other than life, which I um, sort of have questions about. But at the same time, it also, I find it really fruitful as like a way to think about what, like if food programs are are the survival kit, like if that's the metaphor and we're on this raft of like, you know, white cis heteropatriarchal capitalism like what does the like shore that you're trying to get to look like yeah that's so good um so where i go to immediately is actually octavia butler Mm. and like her beautiful text in the parable of sower and i'm gonna do a terrible job but essentially the world has changed god has changed all we can do is like mold it Mm. and so you know i'm just i guess i'm suspicious of the idea of answering problems in general Mm. um and this is something that i heard dr kim Tallbear say one time Mm -hmm. and has just like kind of been one of those ideas that kind of sticks in the back of your brain and makes you think a lot about things 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I have questions about like the possibility of us being able to answer any problems, right? Because like, for example, child separation on the border, how do you, how, how do you solve that mm. problem? The trauma is there. Right. The United States, through its decisions, has incurred a human moral debt that can't be resolved. Right. The trauma, even if we gave these children and their families massive amounts of therapy and resources, like that's something that they're dealing with for the rest of their lives. And so I would say that feeding programs, for example, and our food sovereignty program, like even though it's not maybe like the most ideal manifestation of it, it is what we have to do. It is the approach we have to take in this moment of crisis with the knowledge that things will continue to change and we have to continue to adapt to them. And this is something that I feel like is very important to say as an indigenous person, because one of the really strong narratives that have been told about native people has been that we are either static or assimilated Mm. that unless we are like totally embodying the colonial ideal of what our ancestors behaved like, then we're fully assimilated and civilized and therefore are not legitimate as native people. And so what I focus a lot on in my work is that adaptation to change is a traditional value Mm. and maybe one of the most important values that our ancestors have given to us. Um, so that's that's kind of how I would approach that question. I wanted to ask about queerness a little bit. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you touched on it when you were saying about the words in Kataba, the Kataba language for um, friends and family. And thinking about it a little bit when you said that you didn't want to have kids, which I also don't want to have kids, um, but like being around them as as like a mentor and a teacher and. Um, I just was going to ask, how does your queerness fit into the work you're doing with language revitalization and food sovereignty and just your life right now? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So I like left Washington, D.C. in 2017, which is by some statistics, one of like the more queer places per capita in the United States to move back to you know, I have problems calling it rural because it's the fifth largest city in South Carolina, mm-hmm. Rock Hill, South Carolina. <laughs> but, you know, based on that statistic, I feel like you have a sense of where I'm where I'm coming yeah, from. Right. And the isolation is very real. Mm. Like these queer narratives of like leaving small towns. That's why I left. Right. Mm. And coming back, I see it even more. Uh, I will say, just as like a note of pettiness, the, the most frustrating thing in the world is when my straight female friends tell me that it's really hard to find someone around there. And I'm like, I can't even deal with you saying that to me. Um, You're like, let but, me pull up the map. Let me pull up my Tinder screen that's like, you're at 200 mile radius and there's no one. Oh, no. oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Um, yes. So, so like that loneliness is intense. The way I had like been able to construct my life was that I was able to still travel for performance and speaking and stuff. And so I still got like 
opportunities to experience queer community and queer people and my friends. Obviously, that changed drastically with Mm. COVID. But the thing I keep coming back to is I feel like sometimes on Twitter, there's some like queer urban versus queer rural rhetoric that I'm Mm. like, not about. Mm -hmm. But I think I could just keep going back to like, what is the structure? Like I tend to be like very materialist in my analysis, like, show me the budget so I know that you love me is kind of like my (laughs) modus operandi. Um, And so what I keep going back to is like, what are the structures that have been put in place that incentivize queer people to leave our small and rural communities? And of course, the fundamental concept of that is that the most that we could ever be is tolerated and that's utter bullshit. And I'm just like not here for even having that conversation. Like you will never hire me and I will never accept a job in which my job is to advocate for people to tolerate me. Like, no, I'm excellent. Queer people are excellent and we are beneficial to our communities. Mm. And so we need to like deal with that and the structures that make people feel like they have to leave these communities. Yeah. Um, what that means for me personally is like, I'm just going to keep expanding my Tinder <laughs> radius <laughs> as long as I can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think also about like the, the sort of choice to like coming home. Like, that's part of your choice Mm -hmm. as you're choosing to come back to Katabinijin land. And I wonder, like, how has it been to kind of make space for that as you're coming back as an adult, like, choosing to, like, be like, no, I'm going to be committed to being here. Do you feel like you've been able to make some room for yourself as a queer person in your community? Yes, such a good question. So coming back to my community has been interesting for a lot of different reasons, like very complicated on every front. I think maybe what I'll start with is the framing of me leaving DC. Um, Because I want to be like very clear that I did not feel like I was leaving a queer utopia and like (laughs) going somewhere else. Right. Yeah. As a fellow DCer, I completely get that. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Right. And I mean, particularly because like, you know, even even within DC's limitations, it was very catered towards like cis men, right? Right. And but like even even there, which I have a lot of access to because I, you know, I'm a cis man, but like so many times having really hurtful and frustrating conversations about being from a tribe, mm. like the number of times queer men gay men told me in catty tones, okay, Pocahontas. And like, and just being, just inhabiting that sort of performance Mm -hmm. and like directing it towards me. The number of times I've seen drag queens wearing headdresses, like it just never felt home to me, even if it was like the most safe places I've ever been as a queer man. Mm -hmm. Um, It still never felt like home. So like, I always felt like something was missing living in DC Mm. and the things that I felt like were missing. I found for the most part coming home. Like I just, I love coming home and seeing kids playing and like making friendships, people talking across their porches, being able to leave town and know that my neighbors are like watching my house Mm. and like taking care of me. And like, well, here's a really practical example so much of the narrative that's been 
talked about with tribal nations over COVID has been about how we are particularly susceptible. Something that I'm really frustrated by is that not as much play has been given to how tribal nations are moving with a a speed and an urgency on vaccinations that is unparalleled in like the levels. And so for example, back in February, like early February, right? Like who, who's getting a vaccine back then? Who is not in there? Like who's not in a high risk category? It was a Friday afternoon. Someone didn't show up for their appointment to get their vaccination. My cousin who works at the clinic was like, Rue, I know you want the vaccination. Are you able to get here in 20 minutes? She knows I live right down the road. Mm. And so like, Hell yeah. I was like, do you need me to like pre-swab my arm? Like, what do I need to do to get the vaccine, right? Um, But that's only possible in these sort of, I guess, rural networks, right? Like this sort of interpersonal network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's part of... I don't, I don't think I fully answered your question, but that's like what I came just, to mind. I hear you saying, I hear you talking about how, I mean, you know, like identity is intersectional and that there are parts of yourself that, that you can find here and nowhere else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and here's the other thing, like growing up in a rural community, definitely true. Growing up in a very conservative community, also true. I was very lucky to have like very progressive parents. Like I remember it, I, I didn't go to public school. I went to a private Christian school, but my like anarcho-communist feminist mother, like (laughs) when we had to have an abortion debate, which is something you have to do in Christian school. And we had to, like, go and ask our parents, like, what to say during this debate. Because it wasn't about debate. It was about being able to recite uh, what your parents wanted you to recite. <laughs> so I asked my mom, and, you know, it's the day of the debate. They're like, Timmy, what do you think? And Timmy's like, it's murder. Murder is wrong. And then they get to me, and I was like, well, I asked my mom. And she said, no uterus, no opinion. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I had a, I was very lucky to have a very supportive uh, like family in that sense, uh, but I also had role models. Like I can name off the top of my head four or five uh, queer family members. You know, people that I know of as uncle, auntie, cousin who have been in open and out queer relationships since I was born. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, there's, again, this narrative that, like, the, the South is backwards and stuff. And it's like, well, at least here, like, in Catawba Nation, no, we have out people. Like, I'm not the only out person here. And, and there's a group of queer Catawba people who are working on language and who mm-hmm. are like, you know what? It was a bunch of presumably straight white men who were recording our language. And so they were not very curious about gender Mm. and we are. And so we're going to reimagine what it means in our language to have a queer identity or to have a trans identity and describe it for ourselves. And like, that's fucking cool. That's so cool. (laughs) That's so cool. So like filling in some of the gaps that have been left to you by colonization now with this moment like talk about change right. and, and god being changed <laughs> like. yeah and and again this narrative of like of, of oh the poor indians they've lost so much blah 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 and it's true like we do hold spaces for the things that we've lost and like i was just in a language meeting a few weeks ago and people were crying uh, listening to a recording of 
their ancestors because of the feelings of loss, but also the feelings of what's possible. And I think that's what's missed about tribal nations is that we are looking back at the things that have been taken away, but we're also looking at the things that our ancestors were able to preserve and pass on to us. And we're saying, we're going to reweave this. We're going to make this into a beautiful tapestry that we can pass on to the next generation because they deserve more than what we were given. Mm. And we're not just going to sit around and mourn. We're going to do the work um, to make sure that the next generation is, is inheriting what they deserve. Yes. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> Drew, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh my gosh, what a pleasure. Please, <laughs> like any time. <laughs> and we didn't even talk about magic. I, I mean, <laughs> Can I say two things? And if I forget before I get to the second thing, my two things are the the elder women as a concept, and then also um oh crap, I've already oh, forgotten. No. <laughs> what is the second idea? Um Hopefully it'll come back. Okay, so the elder women, I I just wanted to like make this comment, which is that there is a strong association nowadays with women and seeds, Mm. women and land, women and agriculture, women and food. Mm. And that is supported by Catawba tradition storytelling. For example, after the Revolutionary War, Catawbas were really worried about like whether or not these colonists would respect the treaties that the British Crown had signed. <laughs> and so to protect their land, they decided to put all of their land under the name of Sally New River and other women of the Catawba Nation. Mm-hmm. So like w- within a decade of the United States being formed, this, it's a group of Catawba women like jointly owning and, and administrating wow. land. Um, and they did it. They protected the land until Sally New River, New River passed away and then other things happened. But hmm. this, this, was, this is often like characterized as a continuation of Catawba women's power over land, particularly agricultural land, housing land, burial lands. Mm. But one of the questions I think is really interesting that I'm really curious about learning more about is the way in which those gender constructs in tribal nations, particularly on the East Coast, because they were dealing with it for so long and so early, mm-hmm. um, how those were constituted by the the patriarchal assumptions of the colonists that were moving in. So, for example, it's assumed that Catawba women were not diplomats mm. traditionally, mm. but... Are they not diplomats because the colonists won't speak to women? Right. right. Like, is that the reason that that structure got into place? Yeah. So I, I, I just have questions about that. And, and just because I'm also thinking a lot about we got to do something about masculinity because it's such a freaking crisis. <laughs> yeah. Like this week after witnessing what happened in yeah. – Atlanta and the reflexive ability of men in power to say it was not racially motivated oh my God. and to like ascribe it to a bad day by this uh, man. Yeah. No, no, we are not going to accept that as a, like a model for masculinity. Mm-hmm. No. And I, I feel like as someone who was like raised and people into attempted to indoctrinate me into it. I like have a particular passion around like, no, like this is a system that we are taught into and we can just decide to stop teaching 
uh, people that we gender as boys, as men in this lifestyle. And we have to do it immediately. <laughs> yes. We were texting a little bit about the film gather um, Rue and I, before mm. this, we were having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a film that's centered on indigenous food sovereignty. But one of the things that I really loved about that movie is how how interested it is as a movie, like in terms of the kinds of shots, in terms of the kinds of relationships it focuses mm-hmm. on, in kind of breaking down the the expected representations of gender, and like there's this mm-hmm. group of of teenage boys, and the camera just like like looks at them like they're just this, the most precious, sweet yes. creatures in the world, and I was just so moved by that, and and also and also old women, um, and old, mm-hmm. older women too. The camera does you know. Does a, the gaze, which we've, which is something we talked about when we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road the other day, like the way that we look at the people in our lives, it matters so much. But also just like, yeah, that the, the, that movie kind of had this alternate way of seeing these boys. Yes, and it was beautiful, and it's and again, like going back to what we were talking about before about like these feeding programs. I think like whether or not they're the ultimate answer, it's important to do them because they provide alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so like the young men's fishing program that was featured in gather. And by the way, anyone listening, like please go and watch that film. It is so excellent. Yeah. But like, even if that's not the ultimate answer, like that particular structure, it's providing an alternative vision for what young male development can be Mm. and ah, just, it's so beautiful. And I think what it also highlights is the way that like, and this is not to askew like the ways that like patriarchy visits violence on like gender queer and, and female gendered people, but like just re affirms the idea that patriarchy screws us all over (laughs) and particularly like men from minoritized communities. Like I, I am coded as white. So like, I don't deal with those snap judgments ever, Mm. but there is just so much toxic masculinity that is enforced on a lot of the men in my community and other indigenous communities and other minoritized communities that it's like, you have to do this or, or like die, right? Right. Like you have to do this to survive. And that is, (laughs) is oppression, right? Mm. So it's a beautiful film. I really hope people check it out. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was so fun. I had a really good time and please, please, please have me back in the future. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us, Rue. It's been a total pleasure. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, we're bringing you our second to last episode of the regular season. Friends, the time has flown. And since this podcast began as a pandemic project, it's only fitting that we cover pandemic apocalypse and darling of the quarantine book lists, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. We'll be talking about plagues, bad boyfriends, Shakespeare, and who belongs to the universal culture. And we'll be joined by novelist A.E. Osworth to talk about the book. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. The music for this episode was La Fine des Ericotes by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworldspodcast on Instagram. 
If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>